As the offering is passed around, let me uh, introduce you to our church in case you're new or in case like me, every morning on a Sunday, your brain slides out of your ears and you forget who you are and why you're here. Uh, this is what we believe as a church. Number one, we believe that there's hope beyond our brokenness. We believe that as a community, we have the opportunity to take the risk to be vulnerable with one another about what's really going on in our lives. And as we do that, what we, what we realize is that the heart of, heartbeat of the gospel is, is this good news is not for people who can save themselves. This good news is for people who have the courage to say, Jesus, I can't do this by myself. And so in the middle of our brokenness, there's always a message of hope that our future is secured by Jesus. Second, we believe that we're called to trust in our risen Savior. We're not called to perform. We're not called to manage our reputation. We're not called to pretend. We're called to trust, which means that he knows more than we do, which means that we can rest and follow his directions because we know that life works better as we lean the full weight of our entire life and our spirit on him. Amen? Third, we believe that we're called to bring restoration, which means that you and I don't have to wait to have our lives together in order to be used by God. That everything that you do right now matters. That you have the ability with your words and your actions and your finances to, to help repair and, and restore this broken and weary world. No matter what your diagnosis is, no matter what age you feel like you are, no matter how people treat you, whether they include you or dismiss you, God has a plan and a purpose to use you powerfully. And we're learning how to live into that as a community. So that's what we believe. Fourth thing, very important. We have an egg casserole. Wait, no, one more. Keep on going, John. We have an egg casserole. And out of, out of bacon, it says, we love you, James. So, we love you, James. Everything's better with the bacon. Okay, go back one slide. Let's read this together because we might as well. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. If an usher or someone could get me a glass of water, that would be lovely. That would be lovely. Trevor's going to get me a glass of water. Thank you. I was going to drink all of the grape juice, but I don't think that'd be appropriate, right? It'd be kind of weird. He's doing what now? So last week, we started our sermon series on 1 Samuel by talking about Saul, who is Israel's first king, and then Samuel, who's one of Israel's greatest prophets. And Samuel's story, we talked about Saul's, how Saul's story started. Uh, this week, we focus on Samuel's story. Samuel's story started with his mom, Hannah. So I just want you to understand that the story of King David begins with a woman named Hannah. And Hannah, uh, when, thank you, Trevor. When, thank you. Hannah did something very rare in this day and age in Israel's history in that she was a mom who listened to God. 
So she listened to God, and she knew that God's calling was on her son. God gave her a really particular vision about that. And so when Samuel was a kid, she went to the temple at Shiloh, and she brings Samuel. This is before Jerusalem was established. She brings Samuel there, and she says, I think my son, my, God says my son's supposed to be a priest. And right there, as she obeyed and presented Samuel as a kid to go and to start his, basically his formal education, um, God gave Hannah an incredible vision for Israel's future king. And God was going to be looking for a king who would be faithful to God and faithful to his people, who would trust God and teach the people to do the same, who would use his power to bless and serve others, promoting justice and lifting up the needy. And that kind of king wouldn't have to command allegiance. People would just say, yeah, I want you to be my king because they know that the king would lay down his life for them and so therefore they'd be willing to lay down their life for the king. And all of this erupts out of Hannah in this incredible song which is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I encourage you to go read it. It's incredible. And so that's Hannah's vision for God, from God. Then you have all of the men who are in control. And you know what they demand? You know what their vision is? I want a king exactly like Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south and Babylon to the east. I want a king like modern-day Syria and modern-day Iraq and modern-day Egypt. And so what they do is that they put out a Facebook post that says we're looking for a kingly type person and they have a national search and then there's, you know, the... um, the, uh, Israel's Got Talent competition, right? And all the guys come out, you know, and, and uh, check out my abs and how I can swing the sword and shoot the bow and arrow. And they literally find the tallest, best-looking, greatest warrior in Israel, and his name is Saul. And that's how Saul becomes king. And at the coronation of Saul, Samuel, who's now grown up by this time and is the prophet in Israel... Uh, which is a job description. Samuel says this at the coronation. Imagine this at the presidential, um, you know, when the president shows up and there's the chief justice holding the Bible, which is sort of like Samuel's position. Imagine the chief justice saying this. Oops, sorry, I didn't clear the background. That's my fault. John will help us. Samuel says this. Today, he's talking to Saul and all the people. Today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you said to him, set a king over us. Say it in a real high-pitched voice. Awkward. (laughs) Right? Like that would be, that's a a moment, right? I mean, can you imagine if you're Saul? I'm going to be king. Say what now? I mean, that's a weird moment. And what the elders, the, you know, the senators and representatives of Israel, what they think is, well, they reason, look, and pick anybody. Anybody to rally these 12 tribes is better than the chaos that we're currently in. After all, this is coming right out of the book of Judges when everything's a hot mess. So it's not surprising that the elders who weren't particularly listening to God would choose a man who's more concerned about his own power than listening to God. And so last week we read about how Saul made a series of mistakes and then finally the biggest mistake, which was to not listen to God when he defeated Al-Qaeda Jr., right? That's the Amalekites, right? And 
as he didn't listen to God. It was the last straw among many straws of mistakes. And he's, Samuel confronts him, and at first he's excusing it, and then he's denying it, and Samuel confronts him again. And finally, when there's a consequence given, then Saul says, I'm sorry. And Samuel's like, I'm sorry, man, it's too late. And we talked about this word of repentance, right? Where repentance is the act of listening to God after you failed. You didn't listen to God and then you failed. Repentance is when you say, oh, okay, okay. I'm starting to connect my disaster with my behavior. Okay, maybe I'll listen to God now. That's repentance. It's, it's the act of listening, and then also it's an action where you turn and move from your rebellion and towards Jesus himself. So last week was all about listening to God, and then, of course, Saul doesn't, and so he loses it all. And so this week is about seeing God, and, and more specifically, seeing the truth that God sees more than we do. So last week is about listening, and this week is about seeing, and I promise you, I'm never going to mention that this year is 2020, and we won't do a sermon series on having 2020 vision and all that rigmarole. Can we just all agree on that? And anybody who ever says, you know, 2020, I feel like I want to see clearly, then you have my permission to kick them in the shin gently, (laughs) gently, just one of these, to say, stop it. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need your help. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears. That's our prayer, Lord. We would see what you see, that we would hear your voice. Protect this time. We bind up and mute anything opposed to Jesus that would be trying to distract us or bother us. Lord, this is your time, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to change our hearts through the power of your word and the good news of the gospel. And all God's precious and beloved saints said. Read with me, 1 Samuel 16, 1. Here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. So Samuel's clearly in grief. It's been a while since Saul messed up and Samuel is still sad. Why? I I think you and I might be able to relate with this. If you care about anybody in your life, uh, someone in your family, a spouse, kids, grandkids, you, you, all of us have hopes and dreams for these people in our lives, amen? And so we can see potential in them when they cannot see it in themselves. We can envision a future in which God is moving in and through their lives in powerful ways. A vision where God, we can see God like using their particular unique gifts in incredible ways, right? And if you love, at some point, this is what you're going to encounter. You're going to see that person that you love make poor decisions. You're going to see them walk away. You're going to see them choked with fear or bound up in pride or blinded by their own vanity and it's going to cause you grief. Can anybody relate with that? 
I think all of us can, right? If you can't, I will disappoint you. You'll see that in me soon enough. So Samuel kind of feels like Saul's parent. The office of prophet at this stage in Israel's history is kind of just below king. And so Samuel is Saul's partner and friend and confidant, but at the same time, almost like a mentor. And so when Samuel failed, or when Saul failed, Samuel felt like, man, I should have done something different. Can you relate? So part of the risk that you take in truly loving another person is to watch them crash their life and not prevent it. And I know many of you parents and grandparents, you've let them, you've wanted to get in between them crashing their life in that hard surface called reality or consequences. And so you kind of get crushed with them. And this is what God is saying to Samuel, and this is what God is saying to you. You have permission to grieve, and now you have permission to move forward with hope. I'm not done working. You see disaster, you see failure, you do not see the hope and goodness and glory and perfect plan I see. It's time to get up. And literally, God says this to Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's Jesse who lives in a little town called Bethlehem. For I provided myself a king among his sons. Whoa. Samuel's like, wait, what? You've got another king already? In Bethlehem? That's like, there's a king in Pozo? Like, what? Pozo's a tiny little town up in, they're from North Carolina. It's a tiny, it's like there's one thing in Pozo, right? Um, I mean, all they do is raise sheep in Bethlehem. I mean, like, who comes out of Bethlehem? And in one sense, it's amazing, first of all, that God has not rejected Samuel because Saul failed, and neither has God rejected the whole idea of kingship, Right? So this is absolutely incredible. Amazingly, God is going to take this flawed notion that the people need a king and, and, and take a flawed person and out of this flawed plan, do something incredible. That's what he does with you, by the way. Do I need to say more about how incredible he is? He takes your flawed plans and you, a flawed person, and out of all of that, he does something good. <laughs> so then Samuel realizes, second, for first is like, oh my gosh, and then second, Samuel realizes, wait a minute, Bethlehem is like five miles from where Saul lives. And... Saul might not appreciate Samuel, who's kind of like a national celebrity, showing up to Saul's neighbor's house and anointing them as the new king. Just saying. <laughs> Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul last week? I know you have it memorized, but just for people who weren't here. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. Read it with me. Mm -mm. Oh, dang. 
So if you're Samuel and you go to Saul's neighborhood, what is Saul going to think? Uh, he's going to think, Samuel, this is it. He's about ready to anoint one of my neighbors. And so, of course, Saul's on the lookout for big, strong, good-looking warriors like he is, right? But then also Saul has 100,000 soldiers that just defeated Al-Qaeda Jr. that really like Saul because Saul led the charge and was in the thick of the battle. And, um, and so then God then gives Samuel this hopeful uh, word there's, there's going to be a new king, but now Samuel's like, actually, this sounds like a suicide plan. So, verse 2, Samuel said, uh, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll, well, I'll have an unfortunate accident. <laughs> and the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. This is the only part of the Bible where God's like, well, let's just lie. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. Like, they actually do a sacrifice a heifer, but it's fantastic. God is hatching a plan with Samuel. It's like that. And then God says this, oh, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one that I indicate. What are the instructions? Right? Go have a barbecue. Invite Jesse. And then listen. Listen. That's like last week's sermon. Remember that? Listen. 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 So um, normally when a prophet or a priest comes to a village to offer a sacrifice, it's a big deal. The whole town shows up for three reasons. Number one, they want to be, have a chance to be made right with God. That's pretty important. Number two, they don't have to travel 300 miles to go to church. So it's like, you're bringing church to me? I'm showing up, okay? Number three, there's barbecue. <laughs> and, and, and everybody loves barbecue, right? You can tell people, come get right with God. If you put in barbecue, everybody shows up, okay? <laughs> so verse four, here's a miracle, right? This is a miracle. Read with me. Every time, add a boy. Every time you read something like this in scripture, you need to stop and just go, oh, no way. God's plan is better than your plan. I spoke to two beloved friends this last week, both of whom do not live here in the area. Both of them are in misery right now. Why? Because God told them specifically, very specifically, what to do with work and with relationships, two different issues. Over a year ago, God like, one of them had a dream, right? Like God showed up, do this, right? The other one, over and over and over and over and over and over again, counselors, friends, the whole nine yards, he knows exactly what to do with work. Um, and both of them have chosen to not listen to God at all, right? It's like, I know, I have a better plan. And, and then they call me, full of grief, and they ask me, Andy, what do I do? I'm like, really? Like, are you serious right now? So, you know, I, liz I listen with compassion rather than haughty annoyance, because I've done exactly what they've done a lot. 
and I tell them about my own failures, and then I tell them like, hey, when I listen to God, it really worked out a lot better. What do you think you should do? And both of them said the exact same thing this last week. I don't know, man, I gotta go figure this out. I gotta go, see ya. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, really? Samuel does not do this. Miracle of miracles. It's real simple. Samuel does what the Lord said. Now, you got to put yourself in Samuel's position. When you read the Bible, don't just like read it and let it fall off your head. Put yourself in Samuel's position. God has just asked him to go basically commit suicide. Go anoint the king next door to Saul. Right? Samuel obeying, like how does Samuel feel? Well, his anxiety is through the roof. I mean, like every time he's walking to, he lives about 11 miles north. He's got to pass through Saul's hometown and then go and then finally show up to Bethlehem. And I mean, he's passing soldiers, right? And he's like, Xanax are like Tic Tacs. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I didn't die. <gasps> right? I mean, like he's sweating buckets. He's nervous. And he's like dragging this cow. Hey, Samuel, what are you doing? Nothing. Just cool. I mean, got to take Betsy for a walk, right? I mean... Right? He's freaking out. This is what it's like to obey God. Look, do not wait to figure it all out or till you feel right or when I've had enough sleep or when it feels right to follow God's direction. Like every single moment of transformation in my life came when I wasn't ready. Every single moment when God said, Andy, let's work on your pride. Andy, let's work on your vanity. Andy, let's work on your fear. Let's work on your shame. It came when I was exhausted. Why? Because all of my pride and fear and vanity and shame was exhausting me. Does that make sense? When God speaks to you to move you out of that stuck place or dead place or rebellious place, you'll never feel ready. You will feel tired and exhausted. I mean, like my wife is sick, my son is sick, I'm doubting whether or not I want to be a pastor, I'm looking for other jobs, and, and God says, hey, Andy, let's deal with some character issues that you have in your life. It's like, are, really? Yeah, really. That's how, that's what it's like. Right? Change happens not when like you're ahead of the curve, it's when you're behind the curve. Does that make sense? So Samuel obeys. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Verse four, read with me. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town Wait, 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 wait. Put yourself in the story. Stop rushing forward. I'm trying to teach you how to read the Bible. They trembled. Uh, ready? Now read this with me. Trembling. Did you come in peace? So what we didn't read last week is that, you know, God had commanded... Saul, King Saul, look, I want you to like bring Al-Qaeda to justice, right? They've been killing and raping and pillaging everybody for decades. 
It's time to end their reign. It's time for you to execute my justice. And you're to wipe out everybody. I don't want anybody left. Saul keeps King Agag alive so that he can like bind him and gag him and drag him behind him and then everybody will go, oh, Saul's the king of kings. So what Samuel does is that Samuel actually does what Saul was supposed to do and Samuel kills Agag in front of Saul and saying, you, you couldn't even do this. And so word spreads, like it's Twitter blows up, right? Can you imagine? Right? Pastor Andy did what? Right? I mean, like, huh? Oh, my gosh. So um, the word spreads, don't mess with Sam. Right? Um, Samwise will mess you up. Right? Like when Samwise walks into your town, like, oh, my gosh. Right? Saul lost his kingship, and, like, Sam, like, took care of King Agag, right? Uh, so the elders are like, hey, how you doing? Um, anything, can I confess now? Or like, did you bring a sword? What's going on? Um, so Samuel calms their fears. Next verse five. Samuel says, yes, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, AKA take a shower. And come, literally, we should take a shower, um, and come to the sacrifice with me. So I'm putting on a barbecue in about four hours. That's time for you to scrub your ears, wash your hands, take a bath, and come and be forgiven and experience God's presence. And I'm bringing church to you today. Oh, and by the way, um, bring Jesse and his sons. So Samuel was make sure to invite Jesse and his son. So the plan is set in motion. The whole town goes to take a shower, um, and Samuel lights the grill and waits. Okay? Verse 6. Read with me. Samuel saw Eli. He's like, whoa, notice the verb. This is the second time the verb to see happens in this passage. Anytime you see a word repeated multiple times in a passage, that's your, like, that's the bolded, underlined megaphone. Pay attention, okay? Um, so back in verse 1, if you spoke Hebrew, you, you would have read this. Um, next slide, John. I will send you to Jesse for the Bethlehem. This is God speaking to Samuel. For I have provided for myself a king. This is God speaking. And literally in Hebrew, it's for I have seen for myself a king. So God looking at the situation can see the next person he wants to make king. Does that make sense? So Samuel then sees Eli walking towards him, this strong, buff, strapping warrior guy, right? And says, oh my goodness, right? Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, hmm, surely, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before us, right? Like, wow, what a king, God. Where to go? And this is unbelievable. Like Samuel, for all his grief over Saul, hasn't learned the lesson. Isn't that incredible? Just pause here for a moment and let's marvel at the Bible. Only the Bible 
Only the Bible is, in terms of all of history, records the massive failures of all of its leaders. Isn't that incredible? I mean, like, that's the power and beauty of God's word. So clearly Samuel was interviewed for this book when the scribes wrote all of this down. Samuel could have just omitted this mistake, but he doesn't. Why? Because this story isn't about how great Saul is or how great Samuel is or how great David is. This story is about ordinary people who God chooses to do extraordinary things, not because they're extraordinary, but because God is. This story is about ordinary people who God chooses to do extraordinary things, not because they're extraordinary, but because God is. Somebody say amen. amen. Hannah had her fears. Saul has his pride. Samuel couldn't take his own advice. David has epic failures. The point isn't about them. It's about how good and how kind and how glorious and how gracious God is. So Samuel is still gazing at Eli's biceps and God intervenes. But the Lord said to Samuel, hey, 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 psst, shh, hey, hey, pay attention. Do not consider his appearance or his height or his tattoos. I have rejected him. <laughs> For the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, that verb to see is repeated over and over in this verse. Israel's king is not going to be the kind of person you look at and say, ah, that's the guy. He's got king written all over him. What a relief. What a relief for you and me. Like God doesn't look at you and say, I see you did your hair today. Nice. (laughs) Now I'll bless you. Uh, God doesn't look at you and say, I see you finally changed your diet and you did your budget. Good job. Now I'll answer your prayers. But we live like he does at times. Like we try to be Saul and Eli putting so much weight on our looks and on our accomplishments and our little successes that how we feel about ourselves kind of goes up or down based on our little self-assessment program of whether or not we're big enough or strong enough or successful enough or rich enough or whatever enough. And here's God saying to Samuel, here's God saying to me, here's God saying to you, ready? You make a lousy judge. You can stop all that now. Listen to me, I'm the judge. I see more than you, deeper than you, better than you. Trust my vision, not your blurred and anxiety-driven judgments. If you're wondering what God is saying to you, so God is talking to Samuel, another miracle. Samuel obeys and lets Eli pass by him. Jesse's got more sons. Verse 16, 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab. There he is. <laughs> and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, 
uh, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shema pass by. Here's Shema, right? Samuel goes, mm, not this one. Verse 10, okay, read this with me, right? Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, the Lord's not chosen these. And Samuel asks the most awkward question in the entire Bible. Read it with me. So he asked Jesse, It's like Jesse's like, we've been busy. I, I mean, like, right? Hey, you got any more kids you're hiding? Where's the rest, dude? Like, first of all, when the prophet comes to town and the barbecue's happening, and it's like, this is the biggest event that Bethlehem has ever seen, right? It's like when Willie Nelson almost made it to Pozo, right? Okay. <laughs> It's like, oh my gosh, this is huge. So you don't leave anybody behind, right? What kind of parent does that? Well, all y'all can come, but mm, no, not you, right? So no, no parent does that. But then second, what kind of parent, like Samuel pulled Jesse aside, like, like, like Jesus gave me a dream, like one of your kids is going to be king. What kind of parent goes, okay, you seven come, but not you. So what's Jesse's response? Well, there's still, like, really, Jesse? Come on, man. There's still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. He's not like the sharpest tool in the shed, if you know what I mean, right? Like, Jesse looks at his boy and goes, the youngest, and I'm like, dude, like, I don't know, can you handle watching sheep? Just whatever, just go. I'm not even going to tell you about the barbecue. Yeah, we're all going to Walmart. You just keep on working. Whatever, man. Right? So then Samuel says to Jesse very awkwardly, read with me. So Jesse's like, you want me to do what now? Like, tri-tip's hot, man. Let's eat. Like, steaks are perfect. And Samuel's like, no, we're not eating. Like, no beans, no bread, no tri-tip, nothing. Not even the coleslaw. Not even a cookie. We're not eating until you go and get your youngest. And so it's not like they could drive, right? So somebody, right, maybe the rock has got to go run out there, right? <laughs> He's got to go run out there. How long does that take? How long does it take to run into the hills? Right? And go find David wherever he is. Who knows? David, David. There's no cell phone reception. Dang it. Hey, hey. Right? And then, and then they got to come back. Oh, by the way, David's got to consecrate himself. This kid, this teenager, this junior hire. You know how long it takes a junior hire to take a shower? Like days, right? All the water's gone, right? What happened? I don't know. Go take a shower and then go. Cause, and so, like, the entire time, Samuel. Like, fresh barbecue, everybody can smell. And they're like, are we going to eat? Like, what's wrong with this old guy? Has he just had a stroke? Why are we waiting? What's happening here, right? Verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was, read this with me. Traditionally, that's been, he was ruddy. What in the world does ruddy mean? It means glowing with hell, right? He just got febrezed and showered. 
Ready? He was, read it with me. He was. Now, you and I might go, oh, dang, David was hot. No, that's not what, if you were an original reader, you would not surmise this. This list of attributes is not positive. David was a dork. He was a nerd, a pipsqueak, a nobody. Like, this was not attributes you wanted associated with your name. Does that make sense? Verse 12, then the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. I mean, what a disaster for Samuel. Now he has to get up and anoint with oil the one person who would come dead last in a national contest for king. Samuel's mother would be anointed for king like before this kid, right? This is a molting junior hire with red hair. You want me to what? I'm just at the sheep. You want me to, right? So another miracle is about to happen. And Samuel, for the first time in generations, is going to do something incredible. Samuel is going to choose to trust what God sees rather than what he sees. Verse 13. Read this with me. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Oh... Dwayne Johnson's like, say what? Like that kid? Oh, man. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. And so for the first time in the Bible, we read the name of this awkward junior hire. And his name is David. Now, what makes David David? It's not his looks, clearly. It's not that he was so untrusted and disregarded that he landed the job of a slave, that of being a shepherd. So it's clearly not his grades or his performance. It's not that, it's not that David was anything special. What makes David David isn't David, it's God. It's all about God. Like the moment that the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is poured out on David, from that point on, his life will change dramatically because of what God does, not what David brings to the table. Now, God has poured the same Holy Spirit out on you. Yeah, you. I mean, you're surprised that God poured the Holy Spirit out on the person sitting next to you, but I'm talking to you, like you. God has an amazing plan for you. Yeah, you. And it doesn't matter if you're an awkward junior hire or an awkward 70-year-old. God has an amazing plan for you to lead and to be a blessing and to, to, to help others. And your greatest strength will not be in your accomplishments. Your greatest strength will be found when you listen to the God who can win your battles. When you trust what God sees, the creator of heaven and earth, when you're tempted to go on what you can see. Now, you get the chance right now to be the kind of parent or grandparent or husband or wife who teaches your family right now or your friend group right now how to trust God when you can't see what God can see. You get the chance right now to lay your whole heart before God and to say a dangerous prayer. 
The dangerous prayer goes like this. Jesus, give me a heart that trusts your sight, not mine. Give me ears to hear you. Give me eyes to see you. Shape my desires to love what you love, to love who you love. Give me courage to follow your directions. Even I'm stressed and tired, Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. I need you, Holy Spirit, to fill me and lead the way. You want to you pray a dangerous prayer with me? Jesus, give me a heart that trusts your sight, not mine. Give me ears to hear you. Give me eyes to see you. Shape my desires to love what you love, to love who you love. Give me courage to follow your directions, even when I'm stressed and tired. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you, Holy Spirit, to fill me and lead the way. So what happens next in David's life? Nothing. Literally nothing. Samuel goes home to Ramah. David goes out to the pasture again. I'm going to end with this thought and then a brief story. There might be a, you, you might be in a season right now in your life where you, you wonder what in the world are you doing, God? I don't get it. You might be in a season right now where maybe you feel like David, like, God has poured out a spirit on you and then now you've just been literally sent out to pasture where you feel overlooked or unused. And I want to tell you that God is not done with you. Like God is using this season in your life to shape you and to mold you into the kind of person who has a heart that trusts God even when you can't see what he can see. Does that make sense? God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life right now. There's this awkward young man who's in his early 20s. This is like in 1840. He was all ears and elbows. And he managed his family's general store in the middle of the Midwest on a road less traveled in a tiny town, and they were beyond broke. And the, this kid was like, is there any way that I can get out of this hell that I'm in right now? And he thought to himself, like, if I could just, like, study, if I could, he didn't have money to go to college, but he had seen a lawyer once and thought, man, I'll be a lawyer. I'll, you know, I'll figure that out. And so he was trying to save up money to buy a law book, but all he had to his name was 50 cents. Literally. This is a true story. So there's this old guy in an old wagon pulled by an even older horse that is heading from west to east. He's given up on farming and he's heading back east and he looks at this young man and he says, Hey, I, I'm traveling back east. I need money to buy some food. Like, I got nothing here. Can, will, you, will you buy something that's in the back of my wagon? And the kid looks in the back of the wagon. He's like, Mr., your junk looks worse than my junk. And the guy says, how about this barrel? You want a barrel? Like, I'll sell it to you for 50 cents, please. I just need something. And so this teenager has mercy. This young man has mercy on this old, broken, tired farmer and buys the barrel. Something's in the bottom of the barrel. 
So he lifts the ba- up the barrel out, and out fall just like a pile of old books. And the teenager's like, oh, this young man, is, he's in his early 20s. He reaches down, and he picks up a book, and much to his surprise, there is one book in a series of books which are all piled up on the ground of the thing that he had been wanting for years. And it was Blackstone's commentaries on English common law. It was a massive set that he would never be able to buy for 50 cents. Later in his own life, as he went on to success and fortune, he said, I began to read those famous works and I had plenty of time with the farmers in their field and the hot sun and nobody coming to the store. And never in my whole life was my mind so thoroughly absorbed. That kid would read those books and become a lawyer and then he would go on to win a very important case that paid him a princely sum of money and then he would go on to lend that money to uh, the local Republican Party in his Midwest state that was trying to bring the National Convention to their state and that man did this young lawyer a favor and got him into the into the delegation and then he was nominated on the floor because he was six foot four and all ears and elbows and had a commanding voice and that's how Abraham Lincoln was nominated to be the president of the United States. And never in the world would he imagine that sitting on that stupid porch, on that stupid family store, in that stupid town, would God ever be working and do anything in his life. But he saw the providence of God to take ordinary situations, forgettable moments, seasons of boredom, and use them to create an extraordinary man because of ordinary situations. And that's what God is doing in your life right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desperately need a heart that trusts you. Eyes which can see you ears which can hear you. Holy Spirit, we ask, plead, we're ready. Change us. Release us. Free us. Speak to us. We're ready to start, stop living from that old man that old woman, we're ready to live by your spirit, for your kingdom, for your glory. And all God's people said,